Hey, it's David Green here. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media, and I am your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we dig into all of those political issues, even the complicated ones that might be dividing your own family these days. Well, it is finally the end of 2022, and I don't know if breathing a sigh of relief is the right emotion. I mean, regardless of whether you think this was a good year, bad year, it was a busy year in the news um, all over the United States, all over the world, all over different walks of life. And to wrap things up here at Left, Right, and Center, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, we're going to have our panel share their larger rants and raves for 2022, not just making that a couple minutes of our show, and also uh, maybe some thoughts on what 2023 is going to bring. So let's bring in our panel and our friends. We have Moa Lathy on the left, executive director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service, also communications director for the Democratic National Committee and an advisor to Hillary Clinton and Sarah Isger on the right. She is a lawyer. She is staff writer at The Dispatch, and she was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Hello to both of you and happy early New Year's. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year. Well, Sarah, can I start with you? You want to you want to reflect on on this year that's coming to an end? Anything anything big happen? Anything catch your eye? <laughs> anything that's making you happy, angry? What what stood out to you? What moments? I mean, it was a busy year. I- There's two places that I think are worth starting. One, when we look back 10 or 20 years from now at, you know, one paragraph about 2022, I think it will obviously be the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, And you can't escape the effect that has had on the United States, on our spending and on our domestic politics, frankly, but obviously on the world stage and the role of Russia vis-a-vis the United States in a way that we haven't seen since the Cold War. More domestically, I will say that I found a lot of the temperature rising around the 2022 midterm elections to be very frustrating. We've seen over the last I mean, maybe forever, but certainly the last 10, 15 years, you know, every election being the most important of your lifetime. And if, you know, you don't vote, this will be it. And I felt like that reached a real fever pitch in this year and in the, around these midterm elections. And again, I just hope everyone can take a deep breath now and see that that wasn't true. First of all, midterm elections are rarely going to be the most important elections of your lifetime. Um, And certainly this time around, for nerds like me, they're really interesting. They tell us a lot about the politics of the country and political realignments happening within the two major political parties. You know, I think we learned a good thing, which is that the silent majority, the marginalized middle, whatever you want to call them, they are still alive and well and they are voting. And that is good news for people who want sane politics. So many candidates who lost in 2022, they lost because of that eight or so percent of the country that is willing to break with their parties, um, to break with dogma, et cetera, and say, eh, you know what, I'm just not voting for crazy. That's the good news. The bad news in terms of what we learned about our politics is you know, Chuck Schumer's super PAC spent $53 million on Republican candidates to elevate candidates that he thought would be the most beatable in a general election by Democrats. And so while the Democratic Party was talking about how these candidates were a threat to democracy, the Democratic Party was also funding these candidates on the right. And of the candidates that Chuck Schumer supported, the six that made it into the general election, all were defeated by Democrats. And I think that that will be a lesson that both parties um, watched very closely 
and will learn from moving forward in a dangerous way. We don't want to have each party picking their opponents. You end up with sort of the incredible fueling and funding of these wingers, basically. In many of these cases, Chuck Schumer spent more money on these candidates than they ever raised or spent themselves. Um, You know, you can blame primary voters on the Republican side. I'm happy to have that conversation. But at the end of the day, I think both parties are going to now be funding their opponents to um, in these primaries, which isn't a great thing to have learned in 2022. I reserve the right to follow up with you on all those things as we keep talking, just so you know, because that's all fascinating stuff. Um, Mo, I'm really curious what you think of that as we think about big moments in, in 2022. Because I, I, I f- it feels like, I mean, you've spoken about the Democratic Party and your feelings about funding certain opponents to kind of engineer the general election they want and and how dangerous that is. But isn't it kind of like a almost like a drug. I mean, you do it, you get addicted to it. It feels good. It works. It gets you the results you want. How do you, how do you wean yourself off it? Um, yeah, until it backfires and it, it invariably will. And some might argue that it, uh, did once in a spectacular way. Um, who are you talking Democrat, about? Every Democrat I know was, <laughs> was rooting for Donald Trump right, back in 2016. That he'd be easily beaten. Yeah. I mean, that's one to remember. You know, look, I, I think uh, the fever breaks in politics typically when it stops working, when the thing you're doing stops working. Um, we may be seeing that into 2023, not to jump ahead to the big questions for next year, but, you know, I've always felt that uh, the only thing that was going to break the, the Trump hold over the Republican Party was him just repeatedly losing. Um, and we are seeing more... Um, more Republicans starting to speak out against him, not because of anything he ever did, uh, except leading the party to three straight defeats. So uh, we'll see whether or not that works. I think um, the funding of pro-MAGA Republicans in primaries was good for an election cycle, but but bad for democracy. Sarah, is that when, when Mo talks about Trump kind of losing his hold and you brought up like the, you know, the the silent majority in the middle still being, you know, alive and, and kicking when it comes to voting. I mean, are those are those sort of two ways to articulate the same kind of trend that we saw this year? I think so. You know, because uh, we're still getting so much data in from 2022, overall what we've seen is that Republicans had plenty high turnout to win all of these Senate races. It's just that those Republicans who turned out to vote didn't vote for Republicans. Um, that's the group I'm talking about. And I think it's exactly the group that Mo's talking about that um, is costing Donald Trump favorability within the Republican Party. Certainly, uh, there was a, a fascinating write-up in National Review by a guy named Dan McLaughlin where he walks through uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, um, and Arizona Senate races and gives Donald Trump a grade for just how much he's at fault for Republicans losing those races. Very at fault is how uh, he came out pretty much. Um, But, you know, you look at Georgia in particular, Brian Kemp won by so much, and yet it wasn't enough to pull Herschel Walker over the line. That's the group that I think uh, is giving me a lot of hope about the future of the country, not because they, you know, a Democrat won that seat, but because it shows people saying, like, I'm going to make up my own mind and I'm going to follow this stuff. You know, on top of Republicans turning out to vote, you still have that early voting problem within the Republican Party where Donald Trump told folks not to vote early. And in every state that held, except for one, 
which is Florida. And that's the one state Republicans out early voted Democrats. And it's the one state where Republicans outperformed polling expectations, Ron DeSantis winning by 19 points, et cetera. So I think Republicans had an option in 2022. Either put forward Republican candidates that Republicans wanted to vote for. They didn't do that one. Or encourage early voting and have such high turnout that you actually would have seen that red tsunami that they were expecting, a la what happened in Florida. But they didn't do that either. And both of those things uh, are at the feet of Donald Trump. The three of us talked a couple weeks ago about the sort of the, the far right, the far left gaining steam in our country, you know, be, becoming more extreme on in both directions. Um, like when you think about this, this silent majority in the middle that you're talking about, Sarah, like what and I don't want to overgeneralize, but like what is what is the philosophy for our country or the vision that that they represent in your mind? What what policies are important to them? What are their priorities? What are they they fighting for in their lives? If we if we were to say that that is a you know an important political movement in in our country as as twenty twenty two comes to a close, sanity, lowering the temperature. <laughs> Maybe I'm projecting. No, I mean. I I don't disagree with you. I think that is what you hear from a lot of a lot of voters who consider themselves in the middle. The people who you saw win in these states, and I'm thinking here, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, Mike DeWine in Ohio, the Republican governors who massively outperformed the Senate races, they were incumbents. That's always important, of course. So take out, you know, sort of an incumbency advantage. But they were old school Republicans. These are, you know, kids new to the block. They were running on sort of that um conservative with a small C and conservative with a big C. And it, by the way, many of these folks had passed or supported uh, pro-life legislation. And so it wasn't uh, a referendum on Dobbs in these states either. People were willing to look for someone who sounded like adults in the room and wanted to actually solve problems rather than fuel culture war. Yeah, I, 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 think that is so key and so important. I mean, I think back to even just even the 2020 election, where I think the big issue that motivated people to reject Donald Trump in 2020 was chaos. The the 2020 election was a referendum on chaos. In 2016, to some extent, enough people actually wanted some degree of chaos. They were frustrated with a system that they didn't feel was working for them. Donald Trump promised to blow that system up. They didn't know what that was going to look like. And so, but they knew that something needed to be done. After four years of Trump, I think a lot of those same people said, okay, we may have jumped the shark a bit. We may have gone a bit too far. This is just too much chaos. We're exhausted. We are just absolutely exhausted. Bring the grown-ups back into the room. I think 2022 was a continuation of that with a number of people. Now, I don't want to overstate it because look at how close all of these elections were in 2022. I think one of the things 2022 taught us and showed us was that we don't do massive swings anymore. The pendulum doesn't swing wildly. It just kind of nudges left and right. All of these races that were decided by a handful of percentage points shows just how polarized we are. But what I think it we can say is that there is a group 
in the middle. I don't even know if it's a silent majority anymore. I was going to say, it's like a Im- silent 5 to 8%. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not even close to majority, but okay. No, not close. And I th- but I think, you know, we were starting to move in a direction in our politics where, where people in both parties were saying, we don't need to talk to them. We can just talk to our people and just make sure we turn out more of them. And I think what 2022 showed us was we can't ignore those people. I think President Biden and a lot of Democrats recognized that and developed a a narrative that would speak to those people while mobilizing their base. But we can't afford to blow off that 5 to 8%. I think back to Carrie Lake and that moment in her race for governor of Arizona where she (laughs) said from the podium, are there any McCain Republicans in here? If so, get the hell out. If you ask people not to vote for you, they're not going to. Uh, (laughs) It was very effective. (laughs) Right? They they said, okay, we will. Uh, We can't afford to ignore that 5 to 8%. We can't afford to ignore those people who are exhausted by the chaos and just want competent leadership. Those people saw a number of Republican nominees for Senate and for governor who were promising to keep the chaos going. And even if they were unhappy on a couple of policy points with the Democrats, they said that's too far. But aren't there a lot of people on the left, Mo, who don't want to turn down the temperature, who are like fighting what they view as incredibly important battles of the moment, fighting against racism, fighting for abortion rights, fighting to save the planet. Like it's things that that I feel like a lot of, you know, progressives and people on the left might not want to say like, oh, let me listen to people who want to turn the temperature down. No, these causes are are vital and we're going to keep fighting as loud as we possibly can. I, I don't disagree with that. But I think that five to eight percent doesn't mind fighting for things that they believe in. And all those issues you mentioned, they tend to lean towards the left, if not all the way, but tend to lean towards the left on many of those issues. I think- Oh, here we, Mo look, and I are we, disagreeing strongly. Look, well, but, but hold on. We talk about abortion, right? I disagree to some extent with Sarah that this wasn't a referendum on the Dobbs decision. I do think the Dobbs decision motivated a lot of people, but for a couple of reasons. One, because I think for a lot of people, they thought that it was bad policy. They thought it was a bad decision and they were worried about losing a fundamental freedom. But number two, when a number of Republican candidates seized on it and ran with it, I think what Democrats were able to do was say, hey, this isn't what we should be focusing on. Taking away your right to choice is not what we should be focused on. We agree we should focus on the economy. We agree we should focus on inflation. We agree we should focus on crime. Why is the other side trying to do this? And I think a lot of people thought that that was a desperate message by Democrats. But I think at the end of the day, it ended up being the exact right message to speak to that 5 to 8% who said, yeah, exactly. Why are we trying to take away these rights? Wait, Sarah, one sec, one sec. I'm gonna, we're going to take a quick break. Hold on. I'm, I literally <laughs> swear to you that we're going to pick up right here after we take a very quick break. Uh, we'll be back in a moment with more Left Right and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. 
Okay, we're back again with Left, Right, and Center. And Sarah Isger, the floor is yours. You seem to have some things that you wanted to say <laughs> listening to Mo there a few minutes ago. So that was a beautiful rendition of a 2022 that didn't happen. Um, I agree that Democrats absolutely <laughs> should have been running on the message, you know, why are Republicans talking about abortion? We should be talking about the economy. But that's not what we saw at all. When we looked at what uh, the most commonly used uh, topic or word used in Democratic ads, it was abortion. When we looked at that for Republicans, it was the economy. So A, that's just not how Democrats ran on the abortion message. But also what Mo was saying about how that silent, again, we're not going to call them the majority, that silent 8%, they don't agree with Democrats on many of the policies that you listed. In fact, they're very likely to be Republicans, not just independents. Republicans outturned out Democrats in this election, but they voted for Democrats. They don't agree with the Democrats on the policy stuff. They just um, found that the Republicans had basically forfeited by having candidates that were so egregious. So I think Democrats would make a huge mistake in thinking that they won these races because they have the better policies or that people agree with them or that progressives are leading the way towards electoral victory. This was a referendum on the Republican Party, and the Republican Party made it a referendum on the Republican Party. And that's what Republican voters turned down. And that was the deciding factor in so many of these Senate races in particular. Mo? Uh, Look, I I think, you know, when you look at the list of issues that David raised earlier, that he said a lot of people on the left are fighting for. Abortion, racism, climate change. Just to review. I think a lot of those issues, people that would identify in the middle tend to lean more towards the Democrats. Right, more people in the middle to, are pro-choice than they are anti-choice. More people in the middle believe that action needs to be taken on climate than don't believe action than deny climate change is real. Sure, but Mo, look at Brian Kemp, who signed one of the most stringent uh, and Mike Dewine most stringent, um, you know, anti-abortion laws for their states, they won by huge margins. It's the Senate candidates who lost. So you have to find some other explanation for how one Republican candidate who's incredibly pro-life wins and another one loses. No, but what I guess what I'm saying and what I was arguing earlier is that those people in the middle, I don't think penalize candidates who fight hard on key issues. And I think they're even willing to reward them for fighting hard on key issues, even if they disagree with them on some of those key issues. If those issues, though, if those if they're fighting just to keep chaos going, that's where they penalize them. If they are fighting not for, I mean, it, we have always had edge to our politics. We have always fought on big issues. I don't think that's what's driving people away. I think what is driving people away is they're just tired of chaos. They are tired of fighting for the sake of the fight. They are tired of fighting over ridiculousness. And that's where I think Democrats had the advantage over Republicans this time. When Carrie Lake is out there talking about what she's fighting for, most of those voters said, that's not where I'm at. Sure, but when you have Terry McAuliffe versus Glenn Youngkin, i.e. two not crazy people, those voters, that 5 to 8%, are picking Republicans right now. 
we'll see if that holds. I mean, we, and, but again, look how close that election was. And again, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that a lot of these races are being decided by just a couple of points. That race was decided by just a couple of points. We are super hyper-polarized. We, the majority still is taking a firm stand. And what we're seeing is the pendulum nudging from one side to another, depending on the candidates, depending on the issue set, depending on the political environment. Uh, and that's why I don't think we can overgeneralize the importance of this 5 to 8%. But I do think it is important, and what this year showed us, is that we can no longer ignore that 5 to 8% because of just how close our elections are. They for a while, we were beginning to say they don't matter. They took a stand this time and said, we matter. David, can I tell you a fun fact? I, always. It's a little anytime, apropos of nothing. Any, always. I think, it, <laughs> I think it illuminates a larger part of this conversation. Only one state out of the 35 that had Senate elections this year yeah. didn't go the same way as their 2020 presidential vote. And that was Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson won by 27,000 votes and Joe Biden had won by 21,000 votes. So we're still looking at under a 50,000 vote swing. Does that mean after all um, this, so, nothing has really changed since 2020? Yeah, I mean, what what Mo just said about how polarized we are, these races were so tight Um and all of them, again, except for Wisconsin, went the exact same way as the presidential um, vote, which is quite fascinating in my view. And we ended up with the same number of split ticket states as we had in 2014 and 2018. But what does your fun fact tell you about the extent to which we're evolving, changing, this 5 to 8% is becoming more important? I mean, is it is it are we just in the same place we've been in since 2020? They're sitting there and they're they're thinking very carefully about who the adults in the room are. Okay, I like adults in the room. For the record, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Mo, what uh, what do you think about when you look back at this last year? Well, a lot of the conversation we just had has been, uh, I think, uh, is what I think about when I think about the past year, and, and particularly as it pertains to to polarization. Um, I, you know, I think another uh, story that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about um, that was maybe more impactful than a lot of people thought it would be, and maybe even within the prism of the conversation we just had, was the role of the January 6th committee, uh, the hearings uh, all year long uh, that just wrapped up, uh, and the Department of Justice investigations into former President Trump, some of which were connected to January 6th, some of which were connected to completely other things, and the cumulative impact that they have had in framing the way people look at the former president, look at his political allies, um, and think about the chaos that has ensued as a result of, uh, of some of his actions. I think for a big part of the year, uh, while the January 6th committee's hearings got a lot of media attention, the conventional wisdom was that they weren't going to really move the needle. I'm not sure if that's true. I think, again, I, th I think we too often in, in, in political punditry try to look at everything as a potential you know, silver bullet, asking whether every single action is a silver bullet or not. Right. Uh, but the, th their impact on that cumulative exhaustion that we have uh, may have uh, been understated 
before this election. And it is going to be one of my big questions moving into 23 as the Republicans begin to grapple with their future. You think the, I I mean, there was a time when every new investigation of of Trump or even like the Mar-a-Lago search was was seen by many as benefiting the former president and and firing up his his base. Um, Even the January 6th hearings. I mean, some said like putting more focus on January 6th, you know, one thing it does is it fires up Trump's supporters. Uh, You're seeing something different now. You're, You're seeing those, all those sorts of things as reminding Americans of chaos. And that is increasingly becoming something that, that again, it's only five to 8% in the middle, but that, but that potentially a, a growing segment of voters just wants to sort of fight against and for it to go away. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, again, it may be too soon to tell, but it certainly feels out there that after four years of the Trump administration, after him continuing to relitigate the 2020 elections, after a violent insurrection at the United States Capitol, after a series of uh, revelations about potential illegal contact and finding uh, uh, classified material at Mar-a-Lago, that there's a growing number of people that are just saying, you know what, enough. Even some people that maybe were sympathetic to him, looking around now, maybe even just shopping around, maybe not even willing to reject him outright, but wondering, is there another way we can get what we're looking for without all of this noise? Because number one, it's exhausting. And number two, we are now continuing, we're, we're now losing repeated elections because of all this noise. Will it be enough to change the trajectory? Uh, it's too soon to tell. But I do think it has impacted and why we're seeing some of his numbers uh, take a pretty significant downturn uh, in in the past couple of months, particularly even within the Republican Party. Sarah, is 2022 the the year that the the Trump movement, is is it the beginning of the end? If it's the end, it is the beginning of it, if that makes sense. So Mo's (laughs) right that the numbers are trending downward, and it's most important that they're trending downward within self-identified Republicans. Um, You know, I think that Republicans could write off losses in 2018 and say, well, it was a midterm election. Um, You know, it often goes against the party in power of the White House. And there were wins for Republicans in 2018. In 2020, it was COVID. Well, you know, Democrats were doing a far better job on um, mail balloting during COVID, et cetera. And again, there were still some surprise wins outside of the presidency. 2022, it's just harder (laughs) to come up with how this isn't Donald Trump's fault that you lost the Senate again. Um, And so I think that Republicans, even those who like Donald Trump, and there's plenty who still like Donald Trump, no longer believe that Donald Trump can lead them to the promised land and they want to find someone who can. Now, that being said, if the primaries were held today or let's say January, you know, it was 2024 instead of 2023, I still believe Donald Trump would win the Republican primary. Mm. But we're a year off and those numbers are trending down. They're trending quickly and his favorability among Republicans is hovering at that 70% mark below which it'll be hard for him to recover. You'll hit a tipping point. 
That's an important reminder, though, that you think if a primary were held today, Donald Trump wins. Like it, I mean, it's important to check the narrative. The polling's that, pretty clear on this. You know, there've been about 40 polls since the November election. And again, his numbers have dropped. If you do a head-to-head with Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis wins most of those polls, a majority of those polls, Trump versus DeSantis. But that's not how reality works, obviously. The reality is there'll be a lot of Republican candidates. The weaker Trump gets, the more Republican candidates there'll be. And when you look at those polls, Donald Trump is winning all of them still. Now, some of them are getting tighter. And as you limit the sphere of voters that you're looking at from, for instance, um, registered voters to uh, likely Republican primary voters, Donald Trump drops substantially even in those large field polls. Really fascinating work by uh, Echelon Insights, for instance, running basically those side um, back-to-back questions in a single poll that was really helpful to see. And that's the core thing here, is that the more likely you are to be invested in the Republican Party, the more Donald Trump's declining. And that's what we haven't seen in the past where he's taken some of these dips. Mo, is there a, is there a danger? And do Democrats, I mean, do, you know, strategists in the party recognize the the danger of, I don't know, falling into the trap of thinking that the Trump movement is is coming to an end. I hope they see the danger in it. I think a lot of them are. I mean, we've been uh, surprised and disappointed too many times on the left uh, by his uh, success. Um, I think it is. I think there's there's a couple of dangers. Number one, uh, he could still win. Right? He still could win the Republican nomination. He could still win the presidency. We are still very polarized. Uh, and so the notion that he could be the Republican nominee and he gets blown out is, I think, facts have shown us, history has shown us that we shouldn't count on that. Um, but number two, and I think this is important as well, David, you've referred now a couple of times to the Trump movement. I think um, that isn't going away. He may not end up being the standard bearer for MAGA, but MAGA is still going to be there. And it's still going to animate a number of other candidates up and down the ballot. It's still going to animate some of his potential primary competitors. I mean, I think one of the reasons DeSantis is doing well is because he's found a way to appear um, palatable and maybe even excite some of those MAGA voters without necessarily offending the sensibilities of, of some of your more traditional Republicans. And so for all the things, Trump is a unique figure in American politics. And a lot of his problems are unique to him. But what he was able to stir is out there now. And Democrats have to be able to continue the fight against that, uh, how to avoid allowing that 5 to 8% to buy into that uh, if they want long-term success. All right. Well, uh, let's move from 2022 to 2023 when we come right back with Mo and Sarah. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
We're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I am your host, David Green. We have Sarah Isker on the right. She's staff writer at The Dispatch. And we have Moa Lathy on the left, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. Um, looking ahead to 2023, I, I would actually love to to pick up where we left off. Mo, you talking about the Trump movement, hypothetically without Trump as sort of the the leader of it or the, the public face. And I just think back in... You know, you and I have talked about this for hours. I mean, I go back to being, you know, out reporting in swing states in 2016 and seeing just the Democratic Party fail to give voters who I think many of whom would ultimately vote for Donald Trump a feeling that they were being heard. Has the Democratic Party gotten any better at that? I think the problem with our politics right now and what I would love to see both parties focus on, is that they both are ignoring huge portions of the country that um, don't feel heard. We, you know, and, and I think our collective conversation ever since Donald Trump's election in 2016 has focused on you know, those disaffected people who voted for Donald Trump, many of whom are uh, in between the coasts, many of whom live in rural areas, many of whom are white working class voters. Uh, and uh, whether or not the Democratic Party has done enough to reach back out to some of them. Uh, on the flip side, you see, I think, a lot of Republicans continue to ignore other marginalized communities uh, and um, continue to alienate them. I, you know, I, I find, for example, uh, we all think back to 2016 when Hillary Clinton made the deplorables comment and how that became a rallying cry for a lot of the voters that ended up voting for Donald Trump yeah. uh, as being dismissive of their concerns. I think there are a lot of people on the left and a lot of people in various uh, other marginalized communities who hear the Republican war on woke as equally as belittling and demeaning of their legitimate concerns about their lives and about the access they've got uh, to opportunities. And so I think both parties are, are have struggled with this. Um, I do think what we saw is uh, in 2022, Democrats did a little bit better job of reaching out to some of the marginalized communities on the other side. Uh, Republicans have shown some success, too, with some of the progress that they had made with Latino voters, for example. That didn't play out in 2022 outside of the state of Florida. Uh, and so Democrats may have started to uh, address some of that. They do have to worry about some erosion. But I think, you know, we have, it's going back to this issue of polarization and this sense of, uh, a, set, a feeling of victimization by a number of communities around the country that over the past few elections, the political parties were incentivized to fuel as opposed to bridge, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to address. Uh, that, I think, is going to be a key question in 2023 and beyond, whether either party actually makes any inroads into bridging some of those divides with the marginalized communities that are moving the other direction, or whether they continue for political expediency to uh, play up those divisions. But when you talk about bridging, I mean, building bridges, don't a lot of Democrats, I mean, including those who are like in elected office, deep inside, although they will try never to say it, 
view a lot of voters who supported Donald Trump as deplorable? I think that it is a mistake to paint an electorate with such a wide brush on either side. If if our side in 2016 hadn't said every single person who is flirting with the idea of voting for Donald Trump is a racist, a misogynist, or an enabler of racism or misogyny, they might have heard those who weren't and made a more compelling case to them. If every voter, if every Trump supporter or member of MAGA stops calling everyone on the left a socialist member of the woke mob, maybe they can hear some of those who have legitimate concerns and address some of them. This is a problem both sides have had with how they approach their campaign strategies and how they approach their messaging. Every campaign has two jobs, to mobilize those who are with them or to persuade the persuadable. With the advent of big data over the past decade and a half and its ability to help campaigns more effectively target voters, more and more campaigns have been focused on the mobilization side of it because it is cheaper. Mm. It is more effective. Persuasion is harder. You don't have the data to help you with persuasion necessarily. Persuasion costs more money and it's harder to do than to mobilize yeah, that's someone. that's interesting. And so... I think both parties had been moving in this direction. And it brings us back to what we talked about in, in the last segment um, and, and the importance of that 5 to 8%. The 5 to 8% that turns out to vote, that can swing an election one way or another. Not painting them with, with as wide of a brush is going to be critical. Sarah, do you, do you see the narrative most saying, the, the deplorable, woke sort of comparison? Do you buy into that? You know what? I'm just so... I'm really absorbing what Mo said. I'd never thought about that comparison. My knee-jerk reaction is that no, um, of course those aren't the same thing, but maybe they are. You know, from my perspective, they don't feel the same, but that's the whole point, right? Why not? Like, work, work, this out, work this out with us, yeah. I think that the, look, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy name-calling or uh, ascribing other people's motivation, so I'm never going to say something about the woke mob, but... Um, I think that the problem right now in our culture is that you're not allowed to talk about certain ideas or subjects without um, being shouted down or being called names and that that is stemming from the left. Um, that the idea that words are violence and things like that is so uh, corrupting and stupid making uh, that it should be pilloried by all um, classically liberal thinking people. But I, th I take Mo's point that the sort of name-calling aspect of that is alienating the people who are, um, aren't buying into that. I, I don't know. Maybe. But I feel like a lot of people don't buy into that. I don't know. I, I, but I'm, I am totally intrigued by what Mo just said, and I'm going to be chewing on it for days. There we go. Mo, you gave us something to chew on. I, uh, I want to say I, I've been chewing uh, on what you brought up at the very top when you were talking about 2022, Sarah, and and Ukraine and Russia being such a, a, a sort of vital story in 2022. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Ukraine this year, and I think back to the early days of the invasion, and you had, you know, that Russian warship, the Moskva, trying to take Snake Island and that small garrison of, of Ukrainian military and the guy saying, 
Russian warship, go, you know what yourself. Um, <laughs> and then, and what's amazing is like, I've read about Snake Island. There's this talk that there's, there's some mythology there. Like Achilles might've lived there at some point, which is so interesting. And then you have the Moskva, which was such an important part of the, the Black Sea fleet for the Russians sink after a Ukrainian attack weeks after that moment on Snake Island. Like, and, you know, was that the Achilles heel of Russia? I don't know. Like, maybe I'm drawing too many things together. But there's something like almost mythological, biblical feeling about this this battle. Like, that it's such an important moment in the course of, of, of our planet's journey. But I just, I don't know if if a lot of people see it that way like are americans realizing the stakes here in this in this sort of incredibly important foreign policy moment or or is it just us talking about it can i just tell you there's this moment that um echoes through history and i mean echoes and it's it's snake island um it reminds me exactly of the come and take it story from the Texas Revolution where they hang the flag with the cannon on it, um, come and take it for the Battle of Gonzales, and they lose. And it becomes such a rallying cry. Um, And there were versions of that in the American Civil War. It goes back uh, to Thermopylae. And so these are the rallying cries that do echo through history. And you think back to when Russia first invaded Ukraine and how quickly and tragically, we all thought that would be over. Yeah. And here we are, and President Zelensky is speaking in front of the United States Congress. And heading into 2023, like, they got a chance. Like, they could, I mean, they could, <laughs> quote, unquote, win, whatever that looks like. Yeah, and it, it may look like different things, and um, and we don't know how that story will end. But I just, I remember starting this year out watching Servant of the People, the show that Zelensky had started on yeah. Netflix. It's a great comedian. Um, and, and here he is now. And I think he very well could go down as one of the most important leaders, um, of the beginning of this century. So I do, I just, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Mo, that's the question I have. Like, do you, is it possible that we're living through a moment with like Ukraine, Russia, and whatever this is playing out that, that we don't yet realize that a a century from now, um, this will be a, a moment that historians write about as as pivotal, as critical, as as changing the course of of history, and and we don't see it yet necessarily. Yeah, I think I think that is not just possible, but likely. History doesn't always seem historic until it's in the rearview mirror, and I think this may be one of those cases, particularly when it's not happening here, when it's not happening to us, right? I mean, uh, obviously there have been historic moments that we have lived through uh, as a nation that we recognized were historic in real time, but in large part because it was happening here, it was happening to us. Something happening on the other side of the world, we may just think is news and not realize the impact until until much later. So I think that is very uh, likely in this case whether or not this is the beginning or the midpoint or tail end of some bigger global struggle, I think is um, what's super fascinating and interesting. Um, we talk about, and we talked about it on a previous show, about this being that a lot of people are looking at what's happening in Ukraine as part of a bigger geopolitical struggle between democracy and and the free world and authoritarianism. China is looking because it's got its own designs on Taiwan. 
And I think all that uh, is true. Where this fits into that story, though, we may not see for quite some time. And that that's the big question I have. And I think that it's so unpredictable. And and I do. I am I am keeping in my heart the Ukrainians who are living right now through a very cold and very dark winter where whatever military aid the United States is sending to Zelensky, um, I don't think it's going to immediately stop these Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, which are making life incredibly, incredibly difficult there. Um, well, and I, and I think that is such an important point because we do, right? I mean, we talk about this as, you know, in, through the lens of history, we, we talk about this through the lens of a big geopolitical struggle. But this is, at the end of the day, about people, real people who are going through the struggle of a lifetime uh, that is existential for yeah. them. And that is something I would hope that we can all recognize. When Zelensky spoke to Congress, I was heartened to see the amount of bipartisan applause and and uh, that he got. Um by by talking about that, by talking about the struggle itself. And a lot of the people who stood for him were people who may not have agreed on some of the policy decisions, but they respected it. I was disheartened when I saw a very small, but still a small group of people uh, refuse to stand, refuse to acknowledge the struggle that not Zelensky is going through, but the Ukrainian people are going through. The people who were complaining about his choice of, of outfit, that he wore his fatigues to the White House and to the floor of the House as opposed to a suit and tie. Yeah, that was amazing. That just misses what this is all about. It's about <laughs> oh, you people. Think? You think it misses the point? <laughs> and, Sorry, you know, it was so offensive. It, it was so offensive. Um, we've got, uh, we can talk about history. We can talk about geopolitics. But at the end of the day, it's about people. Yeah, and the guy was just on the front lines visiting people who are suffering. And let's not forget Harvard-Harris poll that just came out. Uh, favorability for Ukraine, 56%. Net wow. favorability, i.e. subtract the unfavorables. Ukraine is behind only Amazon, the U.S. military, and police. Uh, so Ukraine, very, very high. At the bottom of the list on net favorability, Russia, followed closely by Antifa, by the way. Wow. <laughs> okay, well... Um, we're going to leave it there. So instead of our famous rants and raves, because we just ranted and raved a lot uh, for the, the <laughs> for this show, um, I thought maybe we could talk New Year's. Sarah, any New Year's resolutions, New Year's plans you want to share? Yes. Okay. Same one every year. New Year's is the most overrated holiday in the American calendar, followed shortly thereafter by Valentine's Day. But Valentine's Day at least has a positive purpose. And if you're a father, it's a good excuse to get your daughter flowers. Like Valentine's Day can have some redeeming qualities. New Year's Eve, always overrated, never, uh, never can live up to the hype. It, you're just like tired and then the clock turns over. So no, no, no plans for New Year's Eve aside from, I don't know, maybe watching some some old Mad Men. That sounds fun. That's a plan. That's a New Year's plan. <laughs> you have a New Year's plan. Well, I mean, I do something kinda, with my time every night. <laughs> I kind of like New Year's, but okay. I respect I respect your position. Mo, <laughs> do you hate New Year's as much as Sarah? I think I'm agnostic on New Year's. One of my resolutions every year is to um, 
uh, stay as far away from New York City and Times Square as possible. I, I can think of no less uh, appealing place to be than in, in, in the crush of a sea of humanity. One time. I also it's tend, worth it one time. One time. Uh, and never uh, I will, no, I will, David, ta- no. okay, I will take right. your word for it. Okay. I, I also don't like the whole resolutions thing because, you know, I always, they end up lasting maybe three weeks. Um, <laughs> but there is one resolution I've made the last couple of years that I am at least continuing to try to do. And it goes back to, I, th- I think, some of the conversation we were uh, we were having. And that is um, to take a moment to try to better understand other people. Um, we do too often. Uh, Sarah said she tries not to ascribe motivation to other people. That's really hard. It's really hard to not ascribe motivation to other people. Uh, and I think it is important, and so I'm going to keep trying, to not ascribe motivation to other people, to actually listen to other people, try to understand where they're coming from uh, in every aspect of my life and um, where maybe we can find commonality and motivation, that's great. And maybe when we can't, it'll at least make me a better advocate for my position. So that's my uh, ever evergreen goal and resolution. <laughs> I like that. My resolution is uh, to read a newspaper a day. And I mean a physical copy of a paper. On the way to the studio this morning, I I stopped at a store and just, like I worked for a newspaper, the Baltimore Sun, the beginning of my career. When I was like a college student, I would hold several newspapers in my hand, drinking coffee in the morning. And that relationship was so important to me. And I consume my news in, you know, on screens, on my phone, haphazardly. And there's just something about the experience, the grounding experience of holding a newspaper in my hands and just sort of using it as a guide to what is happening in the world around me. And I really want to try to do that again. What an amazing thing to say on a podcast. <laughs> also, and also everyone should listen to podcasts and listen to radio. Um, okay, that is all the time we have for today. Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy, uh, thank you both so much and hope you have a very happy new year. Left, right, and center, uh, I just want to give a huge shout out to the team uh, who puts the show together because I am the least important person on this team. The show is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. Despite Sarah hating New Year's, I will say to everyone, Happy New Year's. We appreciate you joining us and uh, tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 